Greetings, dear listeners. Shadi and I were thrilled to have the great Francis Fukuyama on with us this week, author of the new book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. We start talking about Trump and the state of American democracy, and then get into the question of liberalism more deeply. How dangerous is the administrative state? Is there a healthy center still available for democratic politics in this country? Is the right beyond redemption? And is there a way out for America? Frank thinks there is. As always, the episode is divided in two, with the second half for paying subscribers only. To become one, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and support our work. On to the show. so much for joining us. Uh, this has been really a long time coming. Um, really, we've intended to have you on uh, for years. And then, I don't know, time sort of goes quickly. feels like... It does, especially when you're having an epidemic. <laughs> the epidemic. And then uh, it, it also feels like there's just... It's been so much going on, the epidemic. And then, uh, again, the, the our, our ongoing crises uh, with, uh, with democracy and Trump... Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a, a not a bad place to start this conversation. Um, just today, I, I saw Damon Linker had a piece uh, in the New York Times that was getting uh, a lot of negative attention uh, for su- suggesting that Trump, uh, you know, ought to be either pardoned or, you know, perhaps not indicted. Uh, your former student, uh, our friend, and we had him on the podcast uh, two weeks ago, Jason Willick wrote a similar piece in the, in the, in the Washington post Um, with all of this going on, uh, you know, possible indictments, threats of violence, uh, more broadly, this sense that, that uh, a good part of the, the country is sort of seriously questioning the legitimacy of our institutions. How bad do you think all this is? And is there a way out? Well, uh, yeah, I think that um, it's bad. It's very bad. Uh, it's very bad when a third of your electorate thinks that you have the wrong president, uh, that somebody was elected by fraud, and it's particularly bad when there's nothing to that. Uh, I think it's bad that a lot of these people are armed and, you know, have a increasingly violent turn in their rhetoric, where they think that they're in the midst of an existential crisis for themselves and for the nation. Uh, so I'm very worried about uh, what's going to happen in the United States. Uh, I actually do think that there's a way out of this. I I wrote a, a piece for persuasion on this a couple of weeks ago, and that basically is to win an election. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, 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 it doesn't sound like rocket science, and it isn't, but I do think that um, the Democrats, if they adjust it appropriately, could actually occupy the center of American politics. And I think there's a lot of data indicating that, um, you know, the center is still a a reasonably capacious place. uh, And if they held um, both houses of Congress and the presidency simultaneously, they could actually bring about the kinds of changes that they wanted to under the Biden presidency, but haven't been able to. But unfortunately, the president doesn't seem to be able to really move to the center. Uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of time to do that. But if he did, I think, you know, that might be a, a way out. Do you, do you think, um, so I guess maybe the, the question there is, uh, is, is this a question of when you say all the things that uh, the Democrats want to achieve and that Biden hoped to achieve, uh, we're talking about output legitimacy here, basically, to do the kind of policies that they need to do to basically turn things around and show that capacious center that there's a um, that there's a political uh, force in the country that's fighting for them, that you could then cohere that. You're not talking about making the kind of institutional changes that some people increasingly uh, among Democrats are saying, like packing the courts and uh, and and other sort of things, the filibuster, or or is it both of those? Well. Um... You know, there's plenty of institutional changes I'd like to see, you know, term limits on uh, Supreme Court uh, 
uh, appointments and ranked choice voting and so forth. Problem is that none of that's going to happen soon enough. Uh, you know, that's a long-term project and you got a chicken and egg problem because you're not going to get to that kind of institutional reform unless you're in control of Congress and the presidency. Uh, and so it's really gaining that control uh, initially that's really, uh, that's really critical. And I also don't think at this point that it's really outputs that people are looking for. It seems to me that so much of our polarization is performative and symbolic in nature and that the um, cultural parts of it are much more important than to a lot of people than uh, actually passing a bill and you know delivering concrete benefits. And that's where I think it would actually be pretty easy for the Democrats to make an adjustment because, you know, well, this may be a, a typical uh, vanity of, a, of an uh, intellectual, but I sort of think that my own preferences are where a lot of swing voters are, <laughs> which is, you know, somewhat center-right on economic policy issues. So return to a certain degree of industrial policy, more government intervention, a healthier social safety net, but center-right on cultural issues. And that's really where I think the Democrats have screwed up. I mean, they have invested in all of these really dumb ideas like defund the police and a lot of the, the gender identity politics, which really drives people crazy. It really doesn't have anything to do with outputs, uh, but it does serve to symbolize in the minds of a lot of people, you know, what's wrong with the Democratic Party. And so I think if you had that combination, you would be much better positioned to win, you know, Pennsylvania and uh, uh, you know Nevada, Arizona, even Georgia, uh, than the Democrats are right now. And it's worth noting that um, on on the question of output legitimacy, that Biden has actually done pretty good. And um, readers and listeners will be aware of a piece we published recently by by James Sutton called "The Myth of American Gridlock," where he argues that Congress is better functioning today that it has been at almost any point over the last decade, there's been a series of legislative victories, some of them, some of them with bipartisan support, but a lot of that has simply been obscured. And many people don't even seem to know about it, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, the CHIPS Act, so on and so forth. But Frank, I think you're exactly right, that unfortunately, we're at a, at a time where economics are not the primary cleavage at all. And most Americans don't seem to be particularly satisfied or excited by all of this legislation. And it's and part of the problem, too, is that now all the attention is on Trump in light of recent events. And the more Trump is taking up uh, the air that we breathe, the less we're going to be able to pay attention to anything Joe Biden does. So we're we're sort of stuck with this culture war, as you point out. But if the primary cleavage is now along cultural lines, there isn't a lot of incentive for either party to stand down because that's how each party distinguishes it itself. Because if economics isn't going to distinguish you, what else do you have left? And that's my real I, worry. You know, Shadi, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure that, that I agree with that. You know, Biden was elected to be a centrist and to be a kind of normal president. And I think that people still would like it if that happened. And I think his problem was he he accommodated the left wing of his party way too much in his first year. You know, big spending bills and then the embrace of a lot of these cultural uh, issues. I mean, it, you know, corresponded with all the residue from the George Floyd killing and that it pushed the party to the left. Uh, but I actually think that um, that adjustment could be made. I mean, part of it is I just don't think Biden has been a very effective communicator or politician. One thing Trump understands is that if you're going to take a position like build the wall, you you have to be able to communicate that like in less than a sentence. And you have to say it over and over and over and over again. And I think that Biden... You know, for example, he did say he doesn't believe in defund the police. He said that during the State of the Union. But I'll bet you that if you did a poll and asked 
you know, average Americans does. Biden want to defund the police. The majority of them would say, yes, he does, because they're just not hearing the message. And, uh, you know, um, I, I'm coming to think now that actors uh, actually make good presidents because uh, they actually know this kind of basic communication. That's part of the reason Zelensky has been effective. That's part of the reason uh, Reagan was effective or people that act like actors like AMLO, you know, um, uh, Lopez Obrador in Mexico, he gets on the air every single morning at 7 a.m. and basically just talks for an hour. And, you know, he's been an <laughs> awful president. He's just been a, I mean, I, I can't begin to count the ways in which he's been awful for Mexico. He's basically dragging the country back into the middle of the 20th century. But, you know, he's still unbelievably popular because he really knows how to communicate to ordinary people. And that is something that I think uh, Biden has never been all that good at. Um, you know, we were hoping that he would be that way. And I don't really see a whole lot of other Democrats that are particularly good, uh, certainly not Kamala Harris and uh, or any of the you know potential Biden replacements. But do you see anyone on the right that could even take that? I mean, again, it's 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 that logic of culture war that is is so um, so pervasive. I mean, the the entire right seems to have been captured by Trump. I mean, you you we saw uh, Liz Cheney now go down in flames. I mean, clearly she's not going to be quiet. She may she may yet have a run, but even the fact that that you know her going down so uh, so forthrightly in the primaries uh, just points to basically the the lack of traction that 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 kind of discourse on the right has um so i i again is it is it that is it just that we don't have the talent maybe on the left or also are the incentives sort of not aligned there uh even within the democratic party itself well you know there's some recent poll data that actually suggests that preserving american democracy has been rising relative to inflation and a lot of other things. I mean, Biden could get lucky because inflation really seriously has been coming down and it really could cease to be an issue by the time we get to even the November uh, midterms. And I do think that the January 6th committee hearings uh, did, you know, reach a certain group of people, obviously not the real MAGA types who will never be convinced by anything, but, you know, it's again that those swing voters that will uh, determine a state like Pennsylvania that you know potentially are uh, reachable, uh, and I think that you know so the the question about from the Trumpian threat to democracy I wouldn't say is a cultural issue. Um, you know that's a much more fundamental kind of values issue, and I do think that you know. We'll have to see, but it could be that that committee and Liz Cheney actually did have more of an impact than you know than we may recognize uh, at the current uh, moment. But I do think that the Democrats just have to get off the bus with regard to you know crime, uh, you know a certain type of identity politics, uh, and you know essentially stop saying dumb things that that really uh, scare and irritate people. A worst case scenario, Biden doesn't get better as a communicator. The Democratic Party doesn't shift on these cultural issues. And then either Trump or DeSantis or whoever else wins in 2024. Um, you know, you've said before that if we compare who, you know, who's worse, not that that's always the best thing to do. But if we have to look at right wing illiberalism and left wing illiberalism, or anti-democratic sentiment, the bigger threat comes from the right, and by extension, the Republican Party. How, I mean, if the Republican Party wins, do you imagine a scenario where democracy could actually crumble? I mean, obviously, the quality of our democracy has been declining, but I think democratic decline is a different question than the foundations of democracy being in some sense fatally undermined. And I know it's hard for us as Americans to actually imagine a scenario like that. Well, to be fair, a lot of folks on the left do imagine that scenario on a regular basis. I have trouble 
imagining it. So I'm curious at this point, um, and then maybe we can use that to kind of get to some of the bigger questions about liberalism that you discuss in your book. But this is maybe more focused on the question of democracy and respecting democratic outcomes, which is a little bit different than the focus on liberalism, although we can talk about how intertwined they are in a moment. Well, actually, I do think that the big Republican threat is not to democracy or the principle of democracy, but to liberalism, that is to say, respect for rules. I think that um, there are two very specific and related fears uh, that I have if the Republicans actually get the White House back in 2024. The first is basically the weaponization of the Justice Department. Um, you know, you're you're seeing that happen. I do not believe, by the way, that Merrick Garland is politicizing the Justice Department. I actually think that he really needs to, you know, follow uh, the law in this particular case. Uh, uh, we'll have to see about the January 6th stuff, whether there's enough, you know, to prosecute Trump. But um, but that's just a response to a prior uh, politicization by Trump. And I think that already, you know, you get Kevin McCarthy and other people saying that if they get back the House, they're going to start uh, subpoenaing Democrats and opening up investigations, you know, based on absolutely nothing. And so that's uh, that's a real kind of weak democracy deterioration, you know, where you actually no longer have a neutral rule of law, uh, but, you know, the law is really regarded as a uh, simply as a political weapon. The other thing that I am super concerned about has to do with Schedule F, which is this little recognized um, but extremely important initiative that was undertaken right at the end. It was done in October of 2020, right before the election, uh, where basically the uh, administration issued an executive order creating a new category uh, into which they wanted to place all civil servants that would allow them to basically be uh, held as at-will employees, meaning they could be fired with virtually no procedural guarantees, you know, en masse. And, you know, the planning for this has actually gone pretty far. I, th this matters to me a lot because in my book, Political Order and Political Decay, you know, I wrote about what I regarded as, as one of the most important institutional evolutions that takes place in a liberal democracy. And it really has no, nothing to do with either liberal institutions nor with democracy per se, but actually with the state. Uh, which is the modernization of a state by creating a bureaucracy that is professional, well-trained, nonpartisan, and actually trusted, uh, you know, to do the bulk of the delivery of the things that people want out of a democracy. The United States was very, very late at this. You know, this really happened in Britain with the Trevelyan North Coke reforms in the mid-19th century. The French created you know, ANA and the administrative structures and schools supporting that. You know, you have the Hardenberg reforms um, uh, in Prussia that led to all of these countries becoming modern states, you know, with highly qualified, uh, you know, well-trained bureaucracies. The United States didn't get around to this until the passage of the Pendleton Act uh, in 1883. And um, we've never had a really European-style or Japanese, Korean-style professional bureaucracy uh, of the sort that other liberal democracies have had. To this day, we have, you know, like four to 5,000 political appointees that change with every administration. Um, I think what I would like to do is reduce that to a couple dozen. Uh, but the Republicans want to do the opposite. They basically want to make everybody, from dog catcher, you know, up to cabinet secretary, uh, a political appointee so that they can put their, you know, their friends in power. And that basically rolls us back to the situation of Andrew Jackson, you know, who was the godfather of the patronage system or the spoil system that made American government like the most corrupt of any modernizing uh, democracy in the 19th century. Uh, and so I think all of those, and, and in fact, this 
stuff about Schedule F is going to happen whether Trump is there or not. You know, he may be one of the biggest advocates, but there's a whole bunch of conservatives that have been, you know, basically drooling over the possibility that they could fire, you know, all of the Anthony Fauci's and all the people that they really dislike, you know, in one night of the long knives. And I think that that will happen. And it doesn't destroy American democracy. It basically sets us back to, you know, the year 1876, uh, uh, you know, when we had very weak government and very incompetent government. So, Frank, is there, I don't know how to ask this question exactly. It's kind of a complicated one. Um, this question of a modern state um, and the, let's say, the tension that it exists in with uh, with democracy. I mean, to you know, you even said yourself, uh, you know, you'd prefer that that political appointees get dropped down to um, to less than possible. That's an advocacy of a certain kind of more technocratic approach uh, to governance, and that's something that has for a very long time been something that's rested very uneasily on sort of the American psyche, I would say. Um, even though to your point, I mean, we have modernized, we're no longer the the country that Andrew Jackson ruled over. Um, is there, how do I put it? Are there virtues to American, uh, you know, American sort of uh, objections and sort of putting the brakes on that kind of technocracy. Shadi and I always talk about, for example, you know, comparing the United States and Europe, and we've had some fun on the podcast, sort of um, riffing on 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 uh, Matt Iglesias, who's recently been, you know, traveling to Europe and uh, ironically posting, you know, how much worse Europeans off are than Americans, and you know, sort of having fun with that. But but to a certain extent, there is a, a, a sort of a a a very different cultural approach to to governance and the modern state between Europe and the United States, which, I mean, maybe you disagree with that. Is there is there any virtue to having that tension be more pronounced in the American sense uh, in the American system or is it all downside? Well, well just to add. Uh, you yeah, know, yeah, go ahead. I was go just going to add, add to that because uh, to put my cards on the table, I mean, my instinct is to be skeptical of moving towards a more technocratic model, um, the European, what, what European countries tend to do. Um, and, you know, one could argue that part of the reason we're in the crisis we are is a sense that the government and the bureaucracy is not responsive, that there is a so-called large administrative state that is unelected and unaccountable. Um, and if we do identify that as one of the grievances that not just folks on the right have, but also some on the left, um, then we're almost, you know, returning to a same problem, a similar problem of what people perceive to be the lack of representation and responsiveness. And I mean, this gets to, I think, a bigger, deeper question of if we want to address the crisis of democracy and liberalism that we're facing, maybe we really have to go back to the foundations instead of thinking about um, solutions that we've already tried or that Europe has already tried in a very different cultural context. Well, I just got done writing a really comprehensive uh, review article on the question of bureaucratic autonomy, uh, which is really about exactly this question, right? That any organization from your local garden club up to the U.S. federal government has to delegate authority to, you know, uh, through a hierarchy. Uh, you know, in theory, uh, the, the theory is pretty clear in a democracy. Uh, the people through their voting uh, are the principles and Everybody in the government hierarchy is an agent that simply carries out the will of the people. So nobody would contest that normatively. But, you know, in a highly complex modern uh, society, uh, you know, you have to do a lot of delegation because there's simply a lack of capacity. I mean, you know, you think about the kind of knowledge of the financial system that you need to have if you're running the New York Fed. Right, that's the money market Fed that deals directly uh, with all the money center banks and keeps, you know, the plumbing for that going. Or you think about NASA or, you know, um, 
uh, any number of technical agencies that are responsible for really the bulk of what the U.S. government does. The idea that somehow politicians can have the expertise to, uh, you know, decide how many parts per million, you know, so there's a list of 2,000 toxic chemicals, how many parts per million uh, is an acceptable level of pollution for each of those 2,000, right? So no elected official is ever going to do that. So you've got to uh, you've got to delegate. However, if you start asking the question where and when and to what extent do you delegate, uh, it becomes a very complicated question. And there, I think it really depends on a contextual knowledge of who is doing the delegating and to whom are you delegating. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the capacity of the delegatees, the agents, right? And so um, if you have uh, agents that are self-interested, uh, corrupt themselves, or uh, you know, not qualified to do the job, then you want to have much stricter political control over them, right? An extreme example of this was the Japanese Navy and Army in the 1930s that basically, you know, <laughs> undertook uh, to rewrite Japanese foreign policy at the expense of all of the uh, elected politicians. Um, and you have, you know, plenty of examples of the administrative state doing stuff in certain uh, specific areas. I would say actually the Title IX stuff uh, that Shep Melnick has written about is probably the best example of that, where, you know, all of the sexual harassment policy that's come out of the Department of Education uh, over the last 50 years has really not been done under the Administrative Procedure Act, you know, where you have certain democratic controls. It's actually been written by uh, by bureaucrats. And that's a that's a great example of a kind of out of control uh, administrative state that is basically making policy with very little democratic oversight, right? So that's uh, one case of it. But on the other hand, uh, you have the opposite where the principles, meaning the political principles, members of Congress or people in the White House are themselves venal, corrupt, ignorant, um, uh, self-interested, and it's the bureaucrats that are, you know, the bulwark uh, against this. And I think that, you know, the pandemic gives you kind of examples of both of these, you know, that there were places where you really did not want the political principles, you know, just pulling health policy out of their ass because it was politically convenient for them to do this. I won't name any names there, but I think, you know, you can... You can think of plenty of examples of that. On the other hand, the CDC made a lot of mistakes also. It was too rigid. It didn't, uh, uh, it didn't really do a good job communicating why it was uh, laying out the policies. And so that's a place where a little bit more political control would have been desirable. And so I think it's just wrong to take a principled view on this. In a certain way, you have to do this almost agency by agency because... In some cases, you actually do want to trust, uh, you know, the technocrats to make the right decisions. Uh, you know, that's why we've gone for central bank independence all across the developed world, because in the days when politicians were determining interest rates, it was a big disaster, uh, right? And that's an area where you really need a lot of technocratic capacity to even, you know, begin to make policy. But there are other areas like this Title IX stuff where I think that actually democratic majorities really ought to have the right to shape policy, and they have not been given that right, uh, given the way the bureaucracies develop. So that's a long-winded way of saying that I, I just think that complicated issue, uh, and you have to look at it contextually, you know, you have to see where is it okay to delegate and where is it not okay and make adjustments within a much more kind of informed framework about what it is your government uh, is, is actually doing. And I think that, you know, technocracy is maybe a smaller set of a bigger question and we can maybe turn to that now. Um, it's a subset, if you will, of a broader discussion around the problem of liberalism. And maybe I would put problem in quotation marks, because obviously, some people think it's a problem 
and some people think it's a solution. And you recently wrote um, an important book about precisely this issue. And we would encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy. We'll include a link in the show notes. It's called Liberalism and Its Discontents. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, I mean, obviously, uh, you make the case for liberalism as a solution, but I should clarify that when you talk about liberalism, you're talking about a more minimalist liberalism, what you call classical liberalism. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious to what extent you're, you would acknowledge that aspects of liberalism itself have gotten us to our current point, because at, at some level, um, classical liberals or those who come out of the liberal tradition in the center right and the center left have been in power for most of the last God knows how long, really until Donald Trump, the first, if you will, um, illiberal American president in quite some time. So we had these people in charge. They were liberals or they would describe themselves as such. But something went fundamentally wrong. So I'm curious that if we're if we're diagnosing and we're saying that liberalism is the solution, to what extent do you think liberalism was also the problem? Well, I think uh, this is kind of the main theme of my book is that what happened over the last 50 years were uh, distortions uh, or deformations of classical liberalism that occurred both on the right and on the left. On the right, it was the evolution of, you know, the prior economic liberalism into something that's now called neoliberalism. You know, it's basically the rise of the University of Chicago free market economics that really understood uh, markets to be the solution to every social problem uh, and that demonized the state and, you know, wanted to cut it back. And that the problems that you're seeing in terms of you know, big uh, economic inequality, all of the instability uh, produced, you know, in financial markets that have led to millions of Americans losing their homes because of the subprime crisis, this sort of thing, are not due to a kind of older version of liberalism that understood that the state had an important both protective and regulatory function, but it really had to do with the extension of, you know, this kind of neoliberal ideology uh, into areas where it really wasn't important. You know, in developing countries, you know, World Bank pushing for the privatization of water utilities in, you know, in places where there's a natural monopoly over over water and just, you know, so these things just didn't just didn't work. The um the distortion or the deformation of liberalism on the left really had to do with uh kind of the apotheosis of, you know, so liberalism is about protecting moral autonomy, right? It, 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 it is according people dignity based on their ability to make moral choices. And, you know, the real context of classical liberalism was that those choices be made within an accepted common uh, moral framework. But under the, under the I don't know, um, guidance of philosophers like uh, John Rawls and, you know, others uh, in that tradition, autonomy kind of became an end in itself in which um, you didn't want to accept any kind of social constraints on an individual's desire to choose, you know, their own self, their own actualization of what they believed, you know, was inside themselves in a way that then became either the basis for a kind of incoherent multiculturalism in which you really deny the possibility of sharing common values across a, a, a liberal society or kind of an attack on, you know, virtually any existing cultural framework, uh, particularly those offered by uh, traditional religions. And I think, you know, it's that extension of this idea of autonomy uh, to a point where it really begins to under, undermine, you know, any kind of social solidarity that that form of that interpretation of liberalism uh, becomes very problematic. So all I'm doing is saying, you know, you should unwind both of these. 
right? That the state plays a role in the economy and regulating it. And you got to admit that that's the case and figure out what the appropriate role is. You don't want to go back to excessive statism, but, you know, it's it's got a role to play. And conversely, I think, you know, people's moral intuitions are that they do have dignity because they can make choices, but that doesn't involve rejecting any existing moral framework because people do have to have common moral standards and values around which, uh, you know, a society is built. Uh, so I guess the, you know, the argument that has been made in criticism of my book is that classical liberalism inevitably turns into these two deformations, uh, you know, that liberalism just somehow inevitably uh, goes in one direction uh, towards ever increasing either economic autonomy or personal autonomy. And I'm not sure that that's correct. I mean, I, I do think that uh, you're already seeing a retreat from some of the excesses of those understandings of liberalism and that, you know, there is a, a self-corrective mechanism that's uh, still available to us. So, Frank, you know, this is one of those things that, that I mean, sometimes I think it's because I, you know, I've only grown up in the United States. I wasn't born there, but I did come early enough, so it's probably not an excuse. But it struck me a lot reading your book. Um, it's, how do I put this? Um, it's the question of what grounds a polity. I mean, you deal with this to a certain extent in your previous book on identity, um, but it's 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 the, the sort of... Uh, I think the question that always bedevils me when thinking about um, the United States, I think that that we actually uh, had Walter Mead on a couple of weeks ago as well about his book, and he actually has a passage in, in it where he also talks a little bit about growing up in, in South Carolina and seeing feeling himself as just sort of, you know, I'm from here, you know, almost like a, a, a traditional, you know, European sense of belonging um, to America. And he said that he was, you know, in his youth struck by going to the Northeast and getting this kind of creedal sense of belonging to America, that it's a set of ideas rather than, than uh, an essential sort of thing. I think the echoes in the liberalism book for me um, are this question about whether liberalism itself is um, enough of a ground uh, to basically tether a society to. I guess my question is, A, do you think it is? And maybe B, is it something that, is liberalism sort of the special sauce that that keeps America together? Or is it too thin and sort of, you know, more instrumental to making America work, but not necessarily the glue that keeps it together? Well, I think it's uh, it's critical. It is a glue, but it's not enough by itself. Uh this is actually a point that Yasha and I both agree with, uh, you know, that you do have this creedal understanding of American national identity that's built around um, that's built around liberalism itself and liberal values, a constitution, rule of law, and so forth. And I do think that that has to be the starting point, not just for American national identity, but for the identity in any, you know. Um, uh, modern, diverse, you know, de facto diverse uh, liberal democracy, uh, what Habermas called Verfassungspatriotismus, constitutional patriotism is a starting point, but it's also the case that it's probably not enough. Uh, it doesn't have the kind of emotional grip that, you know, a thicker, um, more traditional cultural understanding of identity uh, has and therefore you have to deliberately create uh, those cultural symbols that are sufficiently inclusive that they actually will be accessible to the de facto diversity of the people that live in your society, but also emotionally powerful enough that people will really care about them. Uh, and so, you know, the 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 kinds of identities that are not acceptable in a liberal society are those that are based on, on um, you know, fixed uh, uh, attributes like race, ethnicity, gender, right? 
Viktor Orban says that a Hungarian uh, is is somebody that's ethnically Hungarian, which means that John von Neumann, Edward Teller, you know, Leo Szilard would not have been Hungarians, even though they grew up in Budapest and went to a Hungarian gymnasium because they're Jews and they're not ethnic Hungarians, right? That's not acceptable. Um, uh, but it also means that you probably need uh, a kind of thickening uh, in a cultural sense uh, of, you know, what people hold in common. And that's actually an area for nation builders, right? There's a distinction between state building and nation building. State building is creating the visible formal institutions of a society. The nation building part really has to do with devising narratives and, you know, common symbols that people can look to when they ask themselves, who am I? Where am I going? What do I hold uh, in common with other people? And, you know, in some countries that can be language. So French identity since the revolution has really been built around the French language. I think that that's actually compatible with liberalism uh, because anyone can actually learn to speak French. Um, it wouldn't work in the Balkans where you come from, uh, Demir, <laughs> because you've got all of these historical, and, and it wouldn't work in many parts of the Middle East uh, where you really do have linguistic minorities that have been living in the same territory for centuries and have their own languages and very thick cultural ties. I mean, for that, you really need a different understanding of identity. I mean, but, you know, but in places where, you know, language can be a unifying uh, factor, uh, you know, that's one thing. But there are other symbols. I mean, even something like sports can be uh, something that people build, uh, uh, you know, common identity around. So if you watched if you watch the Ken Burns film on baseball, it's actually very interesting because baseball itself was conceived of as a nation-building exercise. After the Civil War, the Southern states, you know, were readmitted to the Union after 1876. And there was a feeling on the part of a lot of elites that there needed to be something to get people's mind off of the conflict, you know, off of all the death and the bitterness uh, that had been created. And, you know, it was in that spirit that they said, well, you know, if we have a national game that everybody can play, uh, you know, that would help. And indeed, baseball then became, you know, part of what it meant to be an American. So like in World War II movies, you know, if you suspected a, somebody of being a German spy, you said, okay, who won the 1942 Olymp uh, you know, World Series? And if they couldn't answer, then they're clearly not an American, mm -hmm. right? Uh, now, unfortunately, that common narrative and that common sense of, you know, who we are as Americans has deteriorated. I think that uh, the constitutional, liberal, creedal identity was more powerful than you may be willing to give it credit for. I, I think that you see this very powerfully, like... So, Demir, you, you were not born in the United States? I was not. No, I was born so in Yugoslavia. So you had to be naturalized as a citizen? Correct. Yeah, okay. So you went through a naturalization ceremony. One of the most moving things I've ever experienced. I, yeah, I, I exactly. always say that. That's it's incredible. Exactly. No, that's, it's an incredible thing. Yeah. That is exactly the point I wanted to make. Like in Europe, if you get naturalized as a Dutch or a German citizen, it's, it's no big deal. You just go to some government office and they sign you up, right? Yep. Yeah. But in, in the United States, it's an extremely moving ceremony because you take the naturalization oath, you pledge allegiance to the flag, there's an honor guard, you know, sometimes a politician comes to greet all these people. And it's really quite moving when, you know, somebody from Iran and Guatemala, Croatia, you know, they all say, okay, I'm an American now. And I think one of the big achievements of the United States was that after the civil rights movement, you could actually say, I'm an American in the way that a Turk growing up in Germany could not say, I'm a German, right? I mean, it just doesn't sound right. It, culturally, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. But in America, 
you could actually do that uh, if you're a non-white person coming from you know very distant part of the world because there was this understanding of what it meant to be an American that was based on you know that naturalization oath and pledging allegiance to this set of values and then if you also like baseball on top of that all the better you know it gave you some but I guess just to back up that is a thin sense of identity compared to almost any other less diverse, more, you know, historically rooted society. It is a thin identity. And I think it's been getting thinner with every passing year as we've gotten more polarized and we no longer agree on what that common historical narrative is that we want to teach our children. You know, you know, Frank, I, that's it. I'm glad you brought that, that that up. I honestly, I haven't thought of that moment probably in the last two or so years. But I I, I talk about it fairly frequently. That it really is a uh, it really is one of those things that I'll I'll always remember. It and it's exactly as you described it. You're in a room full of of people from all over the world. It's a simple ceremony. It's it's. Uh, but it's it's deep. It feels deep. It's 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 uh, solemn and joyous at the same time. Really, it it really is special. Which, but even now, just thinking back to it, that's the maybe the part that I'm struggling with in trying to uh, maybe imagine about what's going wrong. And it's and again, maybe it's my <laughs> as you said, my 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 Balkan heritage uh, watching what's happening in the United States in a lot of ways. Um, has me searching for maybe European analogs for some of this stuff. And then maybe also looking to questions of, you know, even that moment, um, of course, packed into it is all of the promise of America and that I would say liberalism brings, including that that sense of personal um, liberty and that you, you know, you have the, the opportunity that it, that it affords you. And yet, I'm struck with all of these debates, um, and even with with the you know the 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 sort of rampant criticism of liberalism that's coming. You know, uh, certainly harder from the right at this point, but you see it in some quarters of the left as well. This this kind of sense of I don't know that it's not that it's just not enough, but that something's gone weirdly wrong with it, and. And you know, let me just sort of back up a little bit on the on the European example. You you mentioned uh, Jurgen Habermas and and sort of that approach to you know the public square. I think a lot of the the vision, and I, I wouldn't say it's neoliberalism in your telling, but it's a kind of liberalism that I would say has infused the European Union as a project. And there's something about the lack of legitimacy to it on the European stage that is fueling a lot of the reaction within the European Union. And so that to me is seems to be, maybe that's a, a bad mental map on my part, but I see that. I see the rise of, of the Kaczynskis and the Orbans in Europe. I see how they weaponize the perceived and felt illegitimacy of certain liberal moves in Europe. And then I, I look back at the United States and I see parallels to that. And I wonder, that's, that's what I'm grappling with when I look at the United States. I mean, where am I, where am I going wrong on this? No, I think that's basically correct. I think that if, you know, if the United States has a thin national identity when compared to, uh, you know, the Netherlands or Norway or Italy, um, the European Union as a union has an even shallower identity, right? Because at least in the United States, we've got an army, we've got a single, you know, uh, set of institutions that are pretty powerful across the whole domain of politics. Whereas in Europe, you know, you got, I don't know, what is it, 27 veto points now for anything done in common in foreign policy. And I think, you know, it's really not powerful. I mean, this is my feeling about the EU all along, is that it's too strong uh, in certain places and way too weak in others, right? So it's strong enough to be really annoying when it's telling you that you can't sell your particular kind of cheese without labeling it a certain way. Uh, but it's also too weak because, you know, there's no common foreign policy, there's no common fiscal policy, 
there's no kind of common educational um, system that is really the way that all nation builders, you know, essentially establish a uh, national identity. In our case, you know, I we had all of those things, but this is where what's happened in the last few years, I think, has been so destructive. And, you know, the left really bears uh, a lot of the blame for this uh, as well. You know, the problem with the 1619 narrative is basically that, you know, it's saying essentially there's been no progress in the United States, you know, that the that the liberal pretensions of the country have never been realized. And if you think they have been, then you're simply duped, you know, by a system that's kind of been racist and phony uh, at its core, uh, which I think is just empirically wrong and uh, also just destructive of the idea of, of a national uh, of a national identity. Uh, and then that sets off, you know, the people on the right that uh, then take the most exaggerated form of that narrative and then try to whitewash, you know, all the bad things that really did happen in American history as opposed to what I thought was the narrative that I grew up with, you know, again, after the civil rights era, that said, yeah, we are a deeply flawed country. We had this original sin uh, of slavery that continued into Jim Crow and segregation, but there's been progress over the years and the America, uh, you know, of, I don't know, 1972 is not the uh, America of 1872 or 1772. And that's kind of something that we've been losing ground on because now it's not clear what, you know, I mean, you're going to get a different narrative taught uh, in a red state as, as opposed to a blue state. And the divergence between those narratives, I think, is probably getting uh, bigger. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying that, yeah, we always were thin. There always was something missing. And even that common glue is beginning to, you know, to separate it's interesting to me that both of you have described American identity as thin, and maybe it is thin, but, but I would also say that it is intense and deeply felt in a way that I haven't necessarily seen in Europe. Now, I don't have a naturalization story. I'm born and raised here, but my parents do as immigrants. And um, I think that I was able to watch them become American and to feel very protective of the American idea. And that is not something, Frank, as you alluded to, that you necessarily see in Europe. It's it's hard for a Turk to become fully German, but it is possible and even quite likely for an Arab or a Muslim from Egypt to become fully American and not just to become American, but to feel it intensely. So uh, that, but that I think, but it's interesting that I don't think my parents would necessarily say that that was about liberalism per se, although of course the American idea relates to liberalism in some sense. But this brings me, I think, to something I want to make sure we get at because I think it really is at the heart of the issue of how does liberalism manifest itself in real life. We've talked about it a lot, but I think that part of the problem with this debate is that there's a lack of precision. So I, as you said in one of your earlier um, responses, Frank, that what we see now is actually a, a deformation of liberalism. But I think one concern with that is are there actually any classically liberal states that we can point to and say, well, yes, liberalism can stay classically liberal? I, I think that, as you mentioned in the case of countries like Germany, um, these are not necessarily classically liberal in how they treat minorities or how they see their own national identity, which still has an ethnic conception. Um, you know, even if it's not legally enshrined. So, you know, I look at Western Europe, I look at the U.S., and I don't see any models of classical liberalism for me to latch onto. So then, then we have an issue where we have 
liberalism as an ideal that we want to strive for and then liberalism as it actually exists in the world. And not to draw an equivalence, but I, you know, I sometimes people make the argument that, well, you know, socialism was never properly tried or Islamism wasn't properly tried. If only we could go to the good version of this. And, um, and I think I'm curious what you would, what you would say to that, because um, we can never, I, we can never really get to the ideal of an ideology. And I think that liberalism in some ways is an ideology, but if it's not, then maybe that changes the conversation. But I think that to me, when I listen to the post liberals, I think that is at the heart of their critique. And I don't know, I just, you know, I'm a, I consider myself still a classical liberal, but one who is very critical of what liberalism has become. And I don't know if I have any faith that we can actually return to some classically liberal idea, which makes me more sympathetic to some of the post-liberal critiques, because I, they may have a point on this, maybe not on other other things. Um, There's a lot there, I know. So, I mean, yeah. Well, you know, it does strike me that there are plenty of examples of what I would regard as classically liberal societies that seem to be working. And I think, you know, the United States in many ways was that, uh, again, in the post-civil rights era, when a lot of the problems were, you know, the, the formal inequities in our system were finally, you know, taken seriously uh, and addressed. And then, you know, there was an effort at social policy to equalize outcomes, you know, more seriously. Uh, I think that in Europe, you do have uh, pretty successful liberal societies. Uh, again, you know, I mean, this deserves a kind of separate discussion, but, you know, France always struck me as in a way, uh, a classically liberal society that in certain ways managed to stay that way because they do have a, you know, obviously there's racism and discrimination there, uh, but at least formally, they do have an ideal of Republican citizenship that's built around kind of French language and culture. And if you accept it, you know, it will accept uh, uh, it will accept you in a way that, you know, you, you couldn't really get away with in Germany or in uh, Scandinavia. Australia, New Zealand, Canada are all deeply liberal societies that are, in fact, um, more diverse than you know, in the United States, at least if you look at the percentages of non, non-native non born people in those societies. And they, you know, although they have been infected by some of the identity politics of America, I don't think they're as far gone, you know, down that road. And so the idea that they could just hang on to that is, it seems to me, is not, uh, uh, you know, is not a, is not a crazy idea. Um, in terms of the neoliberalism, that can be turned back instantly. I mean, in fact, Biden has already turned a lot of it back. He's brought the state back in, you know, industrial policy and social protection and so forth. Um, the, the deeper question, I think, is whether in the identity politics you can roll things back to a point where you have a, you know, thicker, sense of common identity that is also more respected than it is right now. Because at the moment, you know, I think that there is this, uh, you know, this kind of contempt that a lot of progressives have for the idea, you know, the kind of traditional, that traditional sense of, you know, uh, Americanness that both of you have uh, have described. Uh, but even there, I think, you know, I, I could foresee futures in which uh, you do get back to something a little bit more, a little bit more sensible. But I admit, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I don't know that for a fact. Uh, and, you know, it may be harder than, than I think. That's it for part one of the conversation. It's, as usual, divided in two, with the last part for paying subscribers only. To become one, go to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to join and listen to the whole thing. Hope to see you in the bonus.